It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. Links in the description. This week's episode, from the files of Project Blue Book. Part two. (laughs) We already did a part one, but you know, there's so many files in Project Blue Book. I think Fold 3 said something like 150,000 documents or something available. You literally could just do a show just on these Blue Book files. No Uh, problem. I love this website. It's searchable. It scans through all the documents for keywords and they just, they come up. It's amazing. Modern technology. Wow. I haven't, I didn't know their PDFs were searchable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even try that. I was just looking, uh, I just picked random years pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Now you can go up and you can search within the uh, files and it's kind of fun. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. So I'm going to start with the very first file on fold three, which is kind of strange because this one happened on November 1st, 1945. They say it's file 2853, and it happened in Tom's River, New Jersey. But this is strange because Project Blue Book didn't start until like 1947. So I'm guessing that this is either something that was uh, reported to them after the fact, you know, handed into them much, much later, or it's something that the Air Force had on their files, you know, and they just sort of grandfathered it into the the program and to um, Project Saucer when they started that up. So also like one of the ones I'm going to talk about is file number 22. So the fact that this one, if if that's like chronological file 2853, then that would suggest that this is from much later than even 1947. But eh, who knows? Anyways, so this happened November 1st, 1945 at Tom's River, New Jersey. This was, this file doesn't really have the, the front card with all the info on it, like the summary, it's just pictures. That's pretty much the whole thing. It's just five pictures of a UFO. Ooh. Well, no, they're not all of the UFO. One of them has people, but the one with the people is like completely covered up. You just, they, they covered it with like a strip of paper mm-hmm. and you could see like their feet. But I'm guessing they did that to protect their identity, you know, because... I didn't know that these reports included photographic evidence. Oh yeah, there's tons of them with photos. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and this one has... Uh, like I said, five photos and the photos show three circles or maybe orbs in a triangular formation. One of the photos uh, shows like four of the triangle formations and another shows two and that one has it circled in the picture and that's it. There's no witness statements, no description, nothing, just the photos. They look really interesting but unfortunately, they're not really of a high enough quality in the scans to make out what they are. They don't look like they would be a normal object that you would see in the sky, like those, the way the orbs are. Like it, it doesn't look like anything I've ever seen in the sky, not an airplane, not birds, not anything. And they look like daytime photographs. So whatever it is, is kind of weird. The only thing I would say is it's possible that it was some kind of hoax or double exposure kind of a deal. 
and I'm no photography expert, and these photos are of not good enough quality. But on the other hand, there's still really interesting pictures to check out. So if anybody wants to look at them, go to Fold3 and look at the very first file they have from 1945. All right, that's my first one. What do you got, Agent Ether? Kaboom. Well, first, I have a joke. Okay. You ready? Sure. Why don't aliens celebrate Christmas? Why don't they? They don't want to give away their presents. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very punny joke. It is. It is. Okay. So I have a case file from Baker, Oregon on December 4th, 1964. And this case is interesting because it involves both civilian and military ground observers plus radar data. And what's not included in this report is any kind of personal information, if they had any relationship to each other, when or how the incident was reported, the time of the incident. There's nothing about the radar itself. There's no description of the, the radar data. There's no personal statements. It's really just broken down by each observer and what they saw. I think it's an interesting case because you have four separate observers and they all saw very different things and two of those observers came from a military source specifically it said that they got a call from an on-duty air policeman hmm. so you have to wonder were they together at the time was it different calls from two different air policemen like the circumstances under which this report was made and how they made the report aren't very clear but let's take a look at what they did say. All right. So observer number one saw an object the size of a Douglas fir at arm's length. It had a base of circular white lights and then red lights trailing up to a point, And the witness said, like a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> was, was it a Christmas tree, perhaps? One, one has to wonder. <laughs> he said the red lights blinked and the light white lights stayed on. There was no trail, just a steady object fixed on the horizon that disappeared two hours and 30 minutes after his initial observation. Hmm. Very interesting. That uh, sounds like a Christmas tree. I've never heard of any kind of UFO that is similar to that description. I mean, I've heard of UFOs with all sorts of different types of lights, blinking or not. Mm -hmm. But I've never heard of a Christmas tree-shaped one. <laughs> <laughs> and this comes from one of the uh, people who got a call from the air policeman. So it sounds like some sort of official military source. Hmm. Now, I wonder, Not a civilian. They're probably just describing the shape, right? Like the yes. classic shape of the outline of the Christmas tree. Because a lot of people will do that. You'll see in a lot of reports, people will describe it in a way that's accessible to them. So if they're into sports, they might describe something that's like a disc-shaped scene uh, edge on. They might describe that as like a football shape, right? Right. Whereas somebody else might come up with something completely different based on whatever their own personal experience is. So maybe they don't mean that it looks exactly like a tree. Maybe they just mean that it has that general shape. Right. And like I said, there was no personal statement. It was more like line items, like observer one. What, you know, what was the color? What was the size? Where was it seen? And then it will have each of each of the answers for each observer. And so mm -hmm. I just kind of created a description from from the data. So observer number two 
said he saw an object. It had an overall red tint that looked like fire with a gold bottom and a blue top. It was round like a basketball. It left a golden trail behind it as it followed Venus through the sky. The, this is kind of confusing because then he says there's one large and two small objects. So the questionnaire says how many objects were there, and it'll have the statement of each observer. And so you go through, and they're saying what the color is and the shape and the size. And then the next question would be how many were there. So he answered one one large and two small objects, but it doesn't say if they were both gold and blue or if some of them were white. It's not very clear. Yeah, a lot of these reports, you can tell that the people filling them out don't ordinarily fill out reports because some of their descriptions are not super clear and some of the way they describe things are not the same. That's one of the reasons why I really like these reports when they're written out by, say, like a police officer or something, because they write up reports as a part of their job every day. So their reports are very clear and easy to read, and they're very explicit about what they saw. Whereas a lot of these civilian reports, it's a little more difficult to know what they're exactly saying. Right. This was an Air Force report, so it seems like somebody from the Air Force was was typing it out. Yeah, it could have been. Sometimes what they did was they would send somebody to do the interview, and then that person might type up the report of the person they interviewed. And if it if it has the names redacted, then you don't really know who's doing what, unfortunately. There wasn't even redaction. It was just listed observer one, observer two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then we have observer number three, and he said that he saw a sudden flash of light. There was a round object the size of a basketball at arm's length. It was very bright and white, and it looked like the moon in that it was full of craters. <laughs> was it the moon? <laughs> I don't know. It traveled from the south to the southeast before ascending up and out of sight, and he observed it for two hours and 10 minutes. He said he saw about 50 craters total on the object. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Very different observations, right? And this is supposed to be the same sighting. This is the same sighting, but it sounds like it might be a civilian. Okay, and... Are we sure this is the same object? <laughs> no, I mean, we're not. The report isn't very specific, no, but yeah. it doesn't say how they're all correlated. So I have to assume they were just all made on the same day. Yeah, that could be on the same day. Also, I have noticed that on a couple of files, I'll find stuff where either the pages are out of order, there'll be duplicate pages, and even some pages that seem like they slipped in there from a different no, file. No, no, that's not the case here okay. because for each for each section of the questionnaire, it'll have observer one, observer two, observer three, observer four. And okay. then it'll be the next question with the next, you know, set of observers. So it's, it's all correlated together. It's just not very clear. So it definitely would appear that these are four people who saw the same so, event. Yeah, at different locations, it okay. sounds like, because they described where they saw it relative to um, other things. And it was all in the same location, Oregon Baker, but it sounds like they were uh, different places with it, within Baker. Hmm. All right. So our fourth observer was also some sort of military personnel. He got a call from an on-duty airman, and he reports seeing a round object the size of a baseball at arm's length, so maybe seeing it from further away. He said there was a gold light, and it was glowing and stationary, giving off no exhaust, and it faded after one hour and 15 minutes. 
However, in the section where it asks how many objects were there, it says one to four. One to four? One to four. So there's hmm. a range of objects. Well, so if you're watching something, uh, unless there's like 20 <laughs> objects, you're not going to be able to count 20 necessarily that accurately. But if there's one to four objects, you're going to know exactly how many there are. There's not going to be any ambiguity about that. Right. So I'm guessing what he means by one to four is that there was one to four visible at any given time, and maybe they came in and went out of his visual sight. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's what I would guess based on that description, right? Because if you're filling out a report and somebody asks you, how many objects did you see? You're not going to say one to four. If you saw one to four objects, you're going to say it was two. You're going to know. You're not going to be like, oh, maybe four, maybe two. You're going to know it was four or two, right? It actually made me think of where I work because we have a break room and it says at any one time, only three to four people may sit in this break room. (laughs) (laughs) So it gives like a range. So why wouldn't you just put four (laughs) up to four people? But it specifically says on each door that you enter into this break room that it only sits three to four people. Three to four. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe they're, you know, somebody's like really tall. (laughs) <laughs> then they count as two people, so then you can only have three? I don't know. And then I asked one of the uh, nurses about it, and she's like, what do you mean, three to four people? Like, it wasn't, ex- <laughs> like it wasn't confusing or something. <laughs> What's the problem? What's the what problem? What are you confused about? <laughs> uh, so there was no additional information on the radar sources. The report only mentioned the radar data on the first page. And then the last page is a conclusion. And I wanted to mention that On the first page, there's a bunch of handwritten notes. It looks like they're reporting the different directions off the horizon in terms of elevation and the azimuth angle, specifically of the stars and planets that would have been in the sky around that time. So, of course, they conclude based on the data that the observers were seeing either planets or stars. So... One of those descriptions sounds an awful lot like the moon, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. The other three do not. No. Two of the other three sound similar to each other. And then you have that outlying one that looks like a Christmas tree. But that's not necessarily, um, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were seeing different objects. We've seen before, like let's say in the Illinois 2000 Triangle case, where people in different vantage points reported seeing different objects kind of different aspects or maybe some people think it's different objects because some person might report like a rectangular shape and another another person might report a triangular shape or they could just think or they could just be seeing it from a different vantage point like if you're looking at at nighttime if you're looking at a flying triangle that's you know let's say it has a flat edge and that edge is pointed right at you well at night that's going to look like a rectangle right yeah. yeah, and another person, you know, said it had like texture underneath. Well, we don't want to go into that. We did a whole episode. That's a really, really good case. But so, I mean, it's possible that, uh, you know, from a certain distance, it might look like an orb. And if you're close up enough to see the features of this ship, and also, you know, at, at the distance, if something has a really bright light on it, that can wash out the features and anything with a bright light, no matter what shape it is, could appear to be an orb. So it's possible, I suppose, that that's the same object. Possible. And then the report concludes with saying that the radar data must be false because there's no connection. (laughs) And again, there's no information about this radar data, so I don't know what it was, who observed it, how it's related to the case. Must have been around the same time and in the same place. Yeah. Well, and what you'll see is a lot of times, I've seen this time and time again, 
what somebody who's not an expert at reading radar images will often say that, oh, it's possible for this to be an inversion layer, or it's a mistake, or it's an error in the machine, or whatever. But oftentimes, the people who reported the sighting, the actual radar operators will say, that's not an inversion layer, there's not a chance. And the way I would describe this is sort of like, if you ever go to the doctor's office, and they take an x-ray of some of your bones or whatever, and then the tech or the doctor is like trying to point out stuff, and you're like, I don't know, it just looks like a bunch of gray blobs. I, I don't even know what you're pointing at there. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, your, your stuff's broken. I'm like, how? Like, I don't see any broke breaks on there, but it's sort of like there's an art to reading these things. And somebody who sits there, that's all they do full time, all day long is look at the radar. They're going to be able to tell, you know, they're familiar with that equipment. So they know whether or not it's a, a false image or whatever, way more than like some armchair radar scientist or whatever, who doesn't look at these things all day long. I just want to say when Agent Redacted broke his toe, they showed me the x-ray and you could see where there was like a physical chunk of the bone, like a triangular shape that had broken loose and was broken. <laughs> Ew. Yeah, it was pretty gross. gross. <laughs> <laughs> I got a contusion on my toe a couple of years ago. Man, that hurt. But that, yeah, I could see maybe a, a good crack in your toe bone. But on the contusion, they're like, yeah, here it is. I'm like, where? I don't, there's, there's nothing there. Like, it just looks like yeah. whatever. But, you know, the people who know how to read this stuff, they, they are reading it. And to them, it's very obvious what's there. And I think it's a similar thing for radars, you know? Sure. So, well, that, that's the end of the report, that specific report. And I liked it because, of course, the sighting was a, a Christmas tree-like yeah. object. So well, that's that a really fun. good one. That's a really interesting case, actually. And I wish we had more information on that because, I mean, that could be one that you could do a whole case file on. It's, it's fa sounds very fascinating. Sometimes they'll put like newspaper clips and other things in the files but it seems like on this one, there's very little information to go on. Yeah, there's only a couple pages. Yeah. All right. Next up, for me, one thing that makes a really good case better is multiple independent witnesses. This is probably more convincing than any other aspect because you have people who don't know each other all reporting the same thing. Uh, so this case, it's also one thing to pay attention to is like on the on the card, they have a conclusion but does that conclusion actually match what the witness says? Because you can look up the statistics and they, I forget the exact number, right? But there's something like out of all the cases, there's only like 700 cases or something that are unknown that they actually on Project Blue Book, they actually say, we don't know what this is. Most of them, they assign an explanation to it, whether it's, you know, astronomical or crackpot, or in this case, it's a balloon. At least they say it's a balloon, right? But sometimes it feels more like they're trying to force fit an explanation to the sighting to kind of brush it under the rug, to not have to deal with it maybe, or, you know, whatever their agenda was. I don't know. But they seem to want to explain away a lot of these. Now, this case, this is not necessarily the best case in and of itself. But if you remember, we did an episode on this a while back. Kenneth Arnold had his famous sighting on June 24th, 1947. And this is where we get the modern term flying saucer. This started the modern, you know, UFO sighting craze. And it was an international thing This, you know, but uh, he wasn't the only one to see what he saw. If you want more information about his, go ahead and listen back on our episode on that. I don't want to get into it here because there's a lot to it. But on June 21st, 1947, a witness reported seeing something near Spokane, Washington 
not that far away from where Arnold saw his saucers. The files in this in the blue book, they all have like a summary card, like a like a letter page or whatever. What would you call that? A letter page. Like a like a conclusion uh, like I a, don't know. Yeah, just like the first page in the file is almost always summary? like a summary. summary. Yeah. And it's got different boxes, like one to ten or one to eleven, and each one has a category of like what kind of sighting was it, how many people, how many objects, and that kind of thing, right? So this one says that there's only one object sighted, which I guess is kind of true. And item 10 says that the the conclusion is that it was balloons. And we'll look at the witness statement here. Was it really balloons? Is that a reasonable explanation or were they trying to force fit something in this case? Was this before or after the Palmer sighting? The Arnold Palmer? <laughs> no, no, that's iced tea and lemonade. <laughs> right. And a golfer. <laughs> no, this is uh, Kenneth Arnold. His, Arnold. <laughs> his sighting was on June 24th, 1947. But this sighting was on June 21st, So it was 1947. Before. So it was a few days before. Interesting. And if you go back this, we did this one a while ago. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm pretty sure I said on the Kenneth Arnold one, that people all over the area reported seeing this stuff both before the same day and after Arnold had seen it. And that's what makes it a good case is because there's multiple independent witnesses, right? But I don't think I really went into any detail about the other sightings because, you know, Arnold's sighting was quite a lot to talk about by itself. I might have touched on it a little bit. Uh, pause. Pause here just a second. Anyways, so I think I was saying that... uh there were multiple reports of all similar things. And this report in itself would maybe not be super interesting, but when you combine it with the fact that a lot of people in the area saw similar things, it becomes a whole lot more interesting. And it seems to corroborate what everybody else was seeing, especially Kenneth Arnold. All right. So the brief summary, item number 11 on the, the front card says, Observer sighted discs or flashes of light, which were quite large. They were silver and flying slower than an aircraft. So already the, the cover page contradicts itself. It says they only saw one object, but the summary says they saw multiple objects. Kind of weird, but not necessarily unusual for Blue Book files to contradict themselves, actually. Okay, so this is incident number 22. It doesn't have any obvious astronomical explanation according to the file the information given is um, this is a quote from page two the information given is too limited to suggest definite interpretation it would seem however that the object might possibly have been a series of balloons the page page two that gives this brief summary is unsigned however well it might be signed at the bottom something is redacted and that might be whoever wrote the summary for the report. They In the Blue Book files, they redact stuff pretty often, but it's very, very common if you read through the files to find one or two instances where that person's name is not redacted. For example, if you're, uh, if you're reading through the file about the, the um, Michigan Swamp Gas from 1966, when they're talking about Frank Manor and his son at the farm, the, you read through there, their names are redacted through most of it, but there's a couple places where you can actually see their names because whoever was redacting these files, maybe they were in a hurry. I don't know how you would make that mistake, but maybe they weren't all that thorough. And if they weren't that thorough for names, maybe there's other juicy stuff in there they missed as well. 
But anyways, another interesting thing I wanted to point out on the second page of the, on the, this is page two of this particular file. There's on the bottom right, there are handwritten numbers. It's 7-3712-1. Um, I'm not going to go into like this kind of detail for every page, but I just want to point out that when you look through these files, if you have an eye for detail, you're going to see all kinds of stuff like that on these pages, even a page that might look blank. Take a second look. It might have a little number on it or something that means something. In this case, I don't know what this number means. It's a clue. It might be just some sort of numbering or filing system. It might mean that's the building it was sent to when they sent it. Uh, maybe somebody listening knows what that number would designate. I don't know. But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can investigate in these files. For one of the previous cases, for the Swamp Gas case, there was uh, a transmission code. It was like um, five uppercase Ks in a row, KKKKK, or something like that. Maybe it was Gs. I forget what it was. But I spent like hours trying to chase down what this specific code meant. And I eventually found it. It meant that um, that's the, the way it was transmitted from one location to another, the, the level of security they used to transmit it. And, <laughs> you know, obviously we don't have time on this show to go to that level of detail. But if there's somebody out there who's really into researching this kind of stuff, it's kind of fun. It's like a mystery you have to solve. And it this... So the, the problem with solving this kind of stuff too is the military, they changed their protocols over the years. So they might have used that code back then in the 50s or the 60s, but since they've changed the way they do things and they no longer use that code. But anyways, I, I kind of nerd out on this stuff. No, it's true. It's almost like it's on language sometimes. You know, when I open these files and there's like numbers and letters and then there'll be a name and it, you don't know what it's referencing. Yeah. Some of the most interesting stuff is some of the files will have a line or a, on the cover or whatever, they'll say where the file was transmitted to. Usually it's, you know, just whatever local base, probably Wright-Patterson because that's where Blue Book was. And by when I say Blue Book, I mean also I'm including Project Saucer and Project Grudge because they're more or less the same thing. They just kind of changed it and rolled it over. But um, sometimes you'll see codes on there like SAFOI, which would be the secretary of the air force office of information. And if it gets sent up to the secretary of the air force, that's like the head honcho, the secretary of the air force is, as far as I'm aware, anyways, is only second to the president in the chain of command. So if they're sending it to that office, then you look for something important in that file, because there's something they thought was important important enough to send all the way up the chain of command. But like I said, I nerd out on this stuff, and there's there's a lot of really cool stuff like this you can find in the files. Man, I wish I wish I had nothing to do all day except for just dig through these files. There's so much cool stuff in here. Anyways, <laughs> the next page has a witness statement. Uh, Shortly before noon, the witness was in his yard at home when he glanced up at a passing plane. It was a two-engine plane, and he estimated it was about 10,000 to 12,000 feet and looked like a military plane. The witness saw a flash of light lower and ahead of the plane. He saw a line or slim body where the flash was. They, uh, he then noticed more flashes above, ahead and behind the first object. He didn't see any objects to go with those flashes. He just saw the flashes. But the first object continued to flash as it moved. The witness called his wife out, who saw the same thing that he did. The witness speculates that the object must be somewhat large to show flashes and to be seen from what appeared to be a great distance. The objects appear to be silver in color. Now, this is what I mean when 
you have a witness statement where he's the statement is not exactly clear because it seems like he's saying he saw flashes, but only one object. But then he says that he saw objects that appeared to be silver. So I wonder if he, I don't know, it, it's just kind of confusing, but that's what I mean when people who are not re- used to writing reports, they're not explicit in their descriptions. Whereas somebody who writes reports as a part of their job will be very explicit about what they saw, especially a police officer, because that will be used in a court of law. They have to be very specific. Well, you have to wonder when they're sending these officials, these military personnel out to the field to collect statements and maybe write up these summaries, who are they sending out there? Are they sending their best and their brightest? I don't know. Or is it grunt work sometimes? Like, well, you got this report over here. Why don't you go check it out? And the guy at, you know, the bottom of the back goes, oh, do I really have to? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Well, and I have heard rumors and discussions that nobody wanted to be on Project Blue Book. Right. Because that would be more or less a career dead end, right? Like the X-Files. Yeah. If you wanted to move up through the ranks and better your career, Project Blue Book was not the place to do it. And I've also heard speculation. This Now, I have this is completely unfounded, and I don't know how true this is, but I have heard discussions or read discussions that, for example, that Major Hector Quintanilla, Quintanilla? He was saddled with Blue Book um, He after Rupert. You know, he was one of the, well, we won't get into the whole history of it. But anyways, some people have speculated that maybe it was a racist thing that because he was Hispanic, they put him on Project Blue Book because nobody else wanted to do it. And they're like, ah, give it to that guy, you know. But that's, I mean, who knows? That's completely unfounded. And he was a major. And if it was really like, if the military was that racist, they probably wouldn't have promoted him to major anyways in the first place, right? That's a pretty pretty decent rank. That's, that's not like your sergeant or whatever. That's uh, pretty powerful in the rankings from what I understand. So anyways, uh, this is, I'm going to read a little bit of this statement. Oh, by the way, some of these files have handwritten statements. Some of them have typed statements. This one was typed and I'm not familiar with the protocols of the day, but the way this was typed looked like it would have been typed by the military typing it out for the file, not by somebody who typed it at home on a typewriter. Okay, so the the files themselves have scans of all the pages, so you can see the actual handwritten notes and stuff. This one looks like it was dictated or typed out from somebody in the military, but who knows for sure. But the, the uh, statement says, when last seen, they were still traveling south, possibly a little to the west of south, but by this time, the plane was ahead of them. In other words, they were to the back of the plane in our line of vision, We thought no more of them until we saw them mentioned in the papers, then realized we perhaps had seen what others had. And there he's referencing what Kenneth Arnold reported and what other people reported. This is not the only report of this. Lots and lots of people reported this stuff to the newspapers and to the military. This is just one specific case. Anyways, we realized too that whatever they they were must have been quite large, being as plain as the nearest one was, yet so high. And again, they were traveling south against the prevailing winds. At least some of the smaller flashes, if not all, were as high or higher than the plane, but the nearest one seemed lower, but both when it flashed and otherwise, as it did intermittently. The statement is signed, but the name has been redacted. However, there is a PS, and the PS says something like, we're not aware of anybody else in our area who's reported seeing this, followed by the initials GPO. Or is that 
Oh, no. I'm sorry. My font is too small from this distance. G-R-O. And this is what I mean when how careless they were when redacting some of these, redacting some of this stuff. If you were familiar with this case and you knew the people in the area, you could probably figure out who G-R-O was, right? It wouldn't be that hard for somebody with investigative skills. So there's a lot of really interesting hints in the, in the files. Like they, they leave a lot of stuff in there that you're like, hmm, is that, should that be in there? Uh, if you want, yeah, for some of those tidbits, go listen to my first episode. There's some really interesting tidbits in that one on uh, Swamp Gas. But anyways, so does this statement match their initial conclusion of balloons? It doesn't sound like a balloon to me. In fact, it sounds quite a lot like Kenneth Arnold's sighting. If you are familiar with that one, he said that the objects he saw were saucer-shaped or semi-saucer-shaped. He has drawings and stuff you can look up. And they skipped around like you know, like saucers skipping on water. And that's where flying saucers comes from. Now, if you were on the ground watching this, that's why you wouldn't see a continuous flash. You would see intermittent flashes as these things fluttered around. But uh, who knows for sure, but it sounds an awful lot like Kenneth Arnold's sighting just seen from the ground. The objects seen by ground observer could look like this rather than what Arnold reported. Without any context in the sky, it is impossible to say how fast they were going. If they were farther than the plane, then they could have been going faster, even though they appeared to be slower. And that's why the Kenneth Arnold sighting was such a good sighting, by the way. He was able to take measurements that were good enough to estimate certain aspects of the objects, such as their speed. And that's why I spent so much time talking about that one, because it's a really, really good case. Go check that one out. That is just an awesome case. Anyways, the, uh, the report finishes up. There's a couple more pages. The next one's like the standard questionnaire, like what uh, what Ether was talking about earlier, but it's stuff that I've already mentioned more or less. Um, and after that is a couple let like a couple page letter that um, lists other cases that are most likely balloons and has a bunch of numbers. And then number twenty two is circled. That one looked like it was a form letter, just like a list of stuff. And then uh, they you know with certain cases, and they probably included it with any of those cases. So, you know, it's sort of interesting to see, you know, sort of that, that red tape <laughs> that rears its ugly head, right? Uh, and then there's another version of the witness statement a lot shorter uh, after that. And it says basically what I've already described, so I won't really repeat it. But it's kind of interesting to see that they have two different versions of the witness statement. Maybe one of them was like a summary that was given over the phone. And another one was a transcription of what the actual witness said. And I think that the longer one might be an actual transcription of the witness's words because there's lots of grammatical errors in those sentence structures. And it's written more the way somebody would speak rather than the way somebody would type out. But who knows? They don't say for sure uh, if that, that's how it was done. And there was, as far as I'm aware, there was not really a, a strict way of handling these files. Uh, anyways, so my opinion is personally, this one seems way too much like the Arnold sighting for me to believe that it was just balloons. Many people in the area in Washington saw similar objects and reported them both to the Air Force and to the newspapers. Although Arnold sighting was the most famous, it wasn't the first, but other sightings like this one add weight to each other. With multiple witnesses all reporting the same thing, it seems like there was definitely something strange flying around Washington in 1947. All right, so that's uh, that's my second one. Awesome, I liked it. I thought that was a good one. That's a fun one, yeah. All right, what do you got for us? All right, so the next thing from Project Blue Book that I have isn't actually a case. It was a memo that I stumbled across from an Air Force base 
written by Chester H. Long, an executive and Air Technical Intelligence Chief. All right. So he detailed a person who was a West Coast publisher, his name is Redacted, who had handed over some Kodak film that had alleged evidence of UFOs. And this gentleman had written in a formal letter of complaint saying that his film had been edited and stolen. Hmm. I've actually, that's actually a very common thing, believe it or not. <laughs> so this happened a few days before Christmas in 1957. Ooh. <laughs> he wrote a letter to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena in D.C. The military claimed they'd made a copy and the original was returned. And so they got 25 feet originally and they returned 25 feet. And all the people involved in the investigation agreed that the images were a balloon cluster being launched by the Western Institute under an Air Force contract. What was the location of this again? This was in, you know, I think I have it, Montebello, Montebello, California. Oh, okay. So, okay. might be different. There's... There's one that sounds very, very similar to this one that uh, happened at a, you know, a um, baseball thing. But anyways, that's, I'm sure we'll do a case file on that one sooner or later, but please continue. All right. So the film itself, the first 55 frames are blank. Then there's four and a half feet of the alleged UFOs and the rest are just pictures of people and places and that sort of thing. So they... Military officials said there were no splices or cuts, and the accuser must have made them himself. And the memo writer suggests that they either give the copy back to him, that he should show the clipped film to them, that they should give him the copy and, quote, show him that the UFO strip is still intact and he may do whatever he wishes, advertise it, sell it, show it to the public, etc., well, yeah, now that they took out all the good stuff. I don't know. The tone, the overall tone of the memo, the person writing it sounds somewhat harassed and annoyed, <laughs> to be <laughs> as, honest. <laughs> as I'm sure they were. On the other hand, uh, this is something I've heard many times, people claiming that their their pictures have been either altered or not returned at all. We've even talked about this in cases in the past. It's a pretty common thing. So common, in fact, that it's hard to believe that they would make this many mistakes. Yeah, the uh, person in question whose name was redacted, his statement seemed to be that, you know, that they had, in fact, spliced up his film, not returned it to him. And whatever he'd gotten back was not originally what he had given them. And there were, unfortunately, no pictures of this film or the alleged UFOs. Uh, so the film was lost? Uh, I don't know if it was lost, but it wasn't in there. Oh, okay. I see. It just wasn't in the file. It wasn't in the blue right. book file. I was very disappointed. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, man, there's there's a lot of missing data. I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That was kind of a short one, but yeah. I thought it was funny because I kind of just stumbled across it and the overall tone was, was amusing to me. Yeah. Okay. I got another. Are you, are you done with that one? Sure. Okay. I got another one here. So I chose a random year. I just kind of like, okay, uh, 1964. Why not? I just clicked on it. I was thinking of um, of the Van Halen album, 1984, which is just an awesome album, really good album. So I chose 1964 because Blue Book was not around in 1984. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so this happened on the f April 4th, 1964. It was Baltimore, Mi uh, what is that, Michigan? No, uh, Minnesota. No, Maryland. 
dang. This stuff, <laughs> wow. This stuff, is, this stuff is hard to read. And I'm not all that great with my abbreviations. MD, that's Maryland, I'm pretty sure. Anyways, so location was Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, the date time group was, uh, local was 0315. So uh, I'm not sure what that means. Is that like three in the morning? I, I don't know. Well, you wouldn't think it was three in the afternoon. UFO sightings no, no. are normally at night. If, if there's a 0315, that suggests they're using military time as they would in the military. And that would be three in the morning. Uh, yeah. Three in the afternoon would be 1500. 15. No, that's what I'm saying though. Most UFO sightings seem to take place at night. Yeah. So you would expect it to be three in the morning. The GMT, it says 04 slash 0815Z. I have no idea what that means. I'm just kind of, I just like, like I said, I'm a nerd uh, about all this stuff. I just like all this. I don't know what all this means and it's fun to find out. But anyways, um, I'll skip some of these. It says number of objects, multiple length of the observation, one and a half hours. And uh, the course of the object was stationary, kind of. Now we have a brief summary and then we have comments for boxes 10 and 11. The brief summary of the sighting, strange patterns on the television set. Observer assumed them to be various <laughs> forms of flying saucers, etc. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So they're watching TV? Yeah. Um, comments. Electronic interference on set most likely cause of unusual patterns. Imagination of witness distorting these patterns into saucers. And the conclusion is other psychological. And as we know, if, if you've listened to the, when I read um, Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Object, Ruppelt himself said that when they marked something psychological, what they really meant was crackpot or in today's, <laughs> In today's uh, vernacular, I guess you would say, you know, crazy. <laughs> I don't think we say crackpot anymore, really. But anyways, we have a, a handwritten letter here from the witness. And uh, it says, my name is redacted and my address is redacted, Baltimore, Maryland. And it says, uh, timekeeper at the Sheraton Belvedere Hotel. I was watching the Johnny Carson show. And the, uh, it's kind of hard. Some of these words are hard to read. These scans are not that great, but something like in the, uh, maybe like the middle of the show. Or maybe you need reading class. Or the show's ending. It might be that time. Uh, it says 4764. Oh yeah. Yeah. At, uh, 315 AM. Mm -hmm. See, I was right. That's what I said. <laughs> On television. Um, he, he, uh, went to turn the dial off the what code. I don't know. Whatever. I can't read this writing. And the television was not turned on any channel, any channel code. Uh, the pictured, what is that? Pictured a strange object on the television screen on the side of the screen. And then he draws a picture of the television Ooh. with uh, pictures of UFOs can I, on can there. Can I see? I want to see. Yeah, there's a diagram. Hold on. Let me see. And he says, note. These strange objects came on the TV screen at 3.30 a.m. to 6 o'clock a.m. on April 7th, 1964. 3.30 to 6.30 and he didn't yeah. show anybody else? But it says here April 7th, but I thought he said April 4th on the report. That's kind of strange. Maybe once when the report is dated? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's just some sort of clerical, clerical error. I don't know. But uh, yes, he's got a, a television screen and what looks like kind of like a hat. <laughs> 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 you know, on the TV screen. Can I see? Yeah, hold I on. I want to see. I want to see. And it's labeled Flying Saucer Spaceship. Note, 
maybe atomic power. <laughs> uh, note, atomic powered spacecrafts. These spacecrafts may be using or traveling on electronic magnetic power derived from rays of the sun. <laughs> and that's why they're on the TV. Uh, there's, so there's a mother spaceship. There's a metal luster. There's spacecrafts landing on a mother carrier. There were several spacecrafts and a mothership carrier on the television screen. And then it's signed. Um, and then we have here, I'll pass this over to Yay. Agent Ether. I need to see this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I love the response because look at this. This is, um, you gotta, you gotta respect the people who had to, they actually responded to people, right? And their response letter is included in the file. And uh, May 19th, 1964, I guess it took them a while to get back. It says, Dear Mr. Redacted, this is in reply to your recent letter in which you reported unusual objects on your television set which resembled flying saucers. There is no way of judging exactly what the strange objects were, but our technicians assume that it was some unusual type of interference which caused peculiar objects to flash on the set. As you know, outside interference from electrical motors in your neighborhood could cause your television set to have peculiar patterns on the screen, and there is no way to anticipate what form these patterns might take. Enclosed is an Air Force fact sheet on the subject of unidentified flying objects, which we think will be of interest to you. Sincerely, Maston M. Jacks, Major USAF Public Information Division, Office of Information. Enclosure, Mr. Redacted Baltimore, Maryland. All right, I was right. It is Maryland. <laughs> Can you imagine the effort and resources it took to individually respond to each of these case files? I know, and that's why it took them so long. They did not have a lot of people working in this department. I mean, they just, they just had a couple of people assigned, you know? Like, if, if you got caught slacking off on your duties, all right, Project Blue Book, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do I have to? Yeah, but I just thought this was a fun one because I've never heard of an actual flying saucer reported on a television screen. I just got a kick out of that. It's just very silly. And that's what happens when you work graveyard. Yeah, when you're sitting there at 3 a.m. staring at your television screen. <laughs> Go to bed. Okay, well, that was, uh, that was my short one. What do you got? for us next, Agent Ether. Well, I'm wondering if we should like tell our younger audience what is meant by this whole thing because we used to have televisions and they weren't oh, streaming, yeah. right? You used to have to turn the the channel and it was like a local antenna. And like, do they even know that? Probably because well, of pop culture. Not even that. But the more important thing is the it wasn't these flat screen LCDs. You used to have an actual um, cathode ray tube CRT television, Right. And those, those worked a little differently. They would use like magnetic fields to like bounce around electrons and stuff. I won't go into how they work, but you could actually take a magnet and set it somewhere on the TV and it would distort the picture. So what they say in that letter is absolutely correct. It would be possible for a magnetic field to alter what you're seeing on the TV. Now, I actually have tried this before on a CRT and I can't imagine how an electrical field could cause a distortion to make something look like a flying saucer. But I suppose anything's possible. Especially with the little ships flying into the mothership. That's very specific. Yeah, it's it seems a little too detailed. And the picture doesn't look like some anomalous blurb. It looks like an actual, like a hat. It's We've seen a lot of cases that describe a flying saucer of that shape. So it, it's kind of strange 
you know, that there would be something that specific on the TV. I don't really know what to make of it. I'm guessing maybe it was really early and he was like staring at the fuzz on the TV and he just sort of started seeing stuff. I don't know. All that early morning static. Yeah. All right. What do you got for us next, Agent Ether? All right. I have a report from Christmas Eve, 1968. A Mrs. Redacted called because between 5.30 and 5.45 a.m., she reluctantly came forward to say she saw bright lights comparable to the North Star in her window. It suddenly came down, falling to the earth, and then went back to where it was before it moved slowly across the sky. She went outside and observed it for three or four more seconds before it disappeared. So I like this particular statement because I always like when objects travel as opposed to the laws of physics. Nothing should be able to drop quickly to the ground from Earth and then shoot back up again just as quickly. Right. No natural object can do that, and no man-made object can do that. Right. Now, she didn't come forward right away because she said she didn't want her friends to laugh at her, but the response from the military was that they promised to keep it private and not release her name to the media. Unfortunately, this incident was reported months after it happened, so the memo or letter to her states that they can't really investigate the incident, but they send her the form, as they do most people, and say that they'll look back at their records and see if there are any other instances on file for that date. Hmm. So that's kind of a short little one again, but I thought to myself, well, did they ever get back to her? Were there any other incidences around this time? So I looked in the files to uh-huh. see if there were any incidents around this time. That's the really cool thing is if you look around the same time and the same area, you can actually find multiple reports that are describing very similar objects and the files don't necessarily reference each other. You, you'd have to look for them. Exactly. So I found a report and it's written, handwritten at the top is priority in large letters and it's circled. And it also states PT-UFO. I don't know what the PT stands for. Do you? Hmm, no. No, kind of interesting. And it's a summary of multiple sites that took place around the same time in December of 1968. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So there were, actual, there were actually several observers that were in this report. They were all different incidences, but I picked the one that was most similar to her experience. Someone saw a large bright object resembling a star stationary to the sky, and it drew their attention because of its brightness relative to everything else in the sky. And it says it was in San Francisco close to the airport. And then it states it was like in Panama City, like maybe the Republic of Panama or it could be in Florida. It really wasn't very clear where the location was. Florida and Panama and San Francisco are nowhere near each other. I know, but it references all of those locations for the same observer, Observer A. Weird. And it's hard because some of it's redacted, so it's not very clear (laughs) (laughs) where he's seeing this. Uh, And then the report itself is labeled New Carlisle, Indiana. Huh. So, <laughs> all right. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if the report itself, that's where it was filed or where it was made, was in Indiana. And then the sightings, maybe they were in multiple places. Yeah, usually it's typical to when it says Indiana, the sighting was in Indiana. But if there's multiple sightings all over the place, uh, maybe not. I don't know. Right. 
why I'm not sure. I'm curious to what happened to this this woman, though. You know, did they ever get back to her? Probably not. Did she ever tell anybody? Did she go to, like, her deathbed and she never told anybody that she saw a UFO? Yeah, who knows? She might have told her closest confidants. Maybe, but she said she didn't want to be laughed at. She said she didn't even tell her friends. Yeah, and isn't that strange? If you saw something weird and people think that there's something wrong with you, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that, um, and this is why I think that, you know, there's way more UFO sightings than we are aware of because nobody wants to talk about them. Except for people on Facebook. Everybody's afraid of getting ridiculed. You will most people anyway. <laughs> there's whole <laughs> groups of people now uh, in social media where you can go and, and share your experiences and you don't get ridiculed. Except sometimes there's people who go on there and join these groups for the sole purpose of ridiculing those who are sharing, which I don't right. understand at all. Yeah, a lot of skeptics seem to be of that category where they're in it not to disprove, but more just because they like making fun of people. Right. <laughs> they like making people look like they're crazy or weird or something, you know? But all right, is that is that the end of that particular? Yeah, it was It was very short. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah the rest... I'm just, I'm picking them based on, you know, our, my Christmas theme over here. Right, yeah. I, I did not have a particular theme. Mine all ended up being from April 1964 because, uh, you know, there's just so many reports in there that... You can't go, you just can't go through that many, you know? So I have another one here, which is um, a couple of my picked, I thought were, I picked because they were just very strange and not what I thought was amusing. <laughs> it's just really bizarre cases, like that last one with the TV. This one happened on April 28, 1964, uh, afternoon recess. Oh, afternoon recess. It was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it was a ground visual sighting. They do not have photos, and the length of the sighting was not reported. Number of objects, one. Conclusion, other imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's the, the brief summary in box 10 says, Extensive news accounts of sighting flying saucer with green men witnessed 12-year-old girl Supposedly burned by ray guns from object. Aww. Seen from schoolyard. Noon recess. And then comments. Girl contacted two days later and no burns apparent. Doctor contacted and burns attributed to conjunctivitis. Conjuncti conjunctivitis. Conjunctivitis. Yeah, I think that's how you say it. Anyways. Caused by windstorm, dust, etc. Cause attributed to the girl's imagination following the Socorro sighting, which we actually have an episode on the Socorro sighting. Of, Check it out. Of course. Yeah. That's the Lonnie Zamora case. And anytime you have something hit national news, it's not unusual to see, you know, a wave of sightings reported, whether that's people making it up for publicity or people reporting stuff when they otherwise wouldn't have. I think maybe a mix of both. Who knows? But uh, anyways... Burns due to natural causes, wind, dust, sun. And then underneath of that has another little, it looks like it was uh, like a piece of paper pasted on here or something. It says, on page 11 of our September issue, we described the strange case of, redacted, a 10-year-old Albuquerque, New Mexico girl who received fanciful burns, or no, received facial burns during a saucer sighting on April 28th. Now we learn that, according to her mother, Little Sharon grew five and a half inches and gained 25 pounds during the next month and even underwent a very noticeable personality change. 
Whether or not this is a dis- direct result of the UFO sighting has not been established yet. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> and, of inches. And also, if you notice here, they redact the name the first time, but not the second time, right? Yeah. So apparently the girl's name is Sharon, <laughs> which that's what I mean. Like you can find these names in here. It's crazy. All right. So that's the cover page. Unfortunately, a lot of this file, it's it's not that legible when you try to read it it's it's very faint and you can't really see what most of it is says Uh, maybe if i had time i could download it into a pdf and put it into like a photo manipulator and adjust the colors and get it you know really dialed in but i that would take hours and i just didn't have that much time but um i'll skip to the one of these pages because there is part of it that is legible Kind of that uh, I wanted to read. Oh, I should have typed this out ahead of time because it's really hard to read. You can read a few words here and there, and then um, you can see something about uh, upon hearing the bullet ricochet off metal, and then uh, something you can't really read talking about maybe heat from the object. And then uh, they, I guess they called the police, but they initially said. The uh, person was drunk, but they couldn't arrest them for that because uh, for shooting a gun because it was on their own property. And then on uh, th- on the maybe third of April, um, I talked with Redacted, the ten year old who supposedly was burned by a UFO. She watched uh, on the twenty eighth of April. Her oh no, so it must be the thirty second of April. Her attention was first brought to the object by her younger sister who said, oh, look, the two little green men, and pointed toward the Sandia Mountains, uh, Sandia Mountains north of Albuquerque. I talked to Dr. Burt, the physician, and then it kind of gets, you know, really faded again. You can't really make much of it out. But I thought that was really weird that they're talking about, like, gunshots and drunk people and that, like, they couldn't arrest them because they were shooting off guns on their own property. I'm like the hell kind of sighting is this? Like, <laughs> I want to, I want, I wish like, I really want to read the rest of this. This sounds like a really weird one, right? Make a good movie. Yeah. There's like something strange going on here. I don't know what, Oh, there's like a little timeline here. And, uh, it, it looks like this is a summary written by somebody in the air force. Cause it's signed FC, uh, what Tom S FC Tompkins, second Lieutenant USAF. It says, uh, 10 o'clock Lieutenant Lafayette, um, called with secondhand info on the UFOs, 1230, uh, something, can't really read it, uh, called with a UFO report and have um, uh, Major Connert's secretary, uh, the sergeant's phone number, and then it has what could be a phone number here. Sergeant Miller claims to have seen the UFO through glasses the object had very bright uh, metallic appearance with oval hump on the left side. And at 20 hundred hours, that'd be uh, eight o'clock in the evening. Um, Mrs. Informed by uh, AFSWC staff duty officer of UFO report by redacted phone redacted. She claims that her child sighted and was burned by infrared, a UFO near Lowell school at about noon, tried to contact Major Donner. Having failed, called Redacted, 
and promised to have her talk with Major Connor tomorrow. And then has a time and date, 0700, 29th of April, informed Major Connor's secretary. And so you, we can see here by the summary, like, it looks like there's more going on here than just a, a little girl making up a story. There's, I mean, but it's just so fascinating because there's so much of this file that's kind of illegible that you just sort of have to wonder, you know, like, what was going on here? And then there's some newspaper clips at the very last page of some newspaper clippings, uh, presumably about this, but they're too faint to read. So again, like I wish I had time or I don't even have the ability. Like I wish I knew how to go in and manipulate these files and bring out these words, but it's really not possible with my skill set, anyways. But man, this looks like a really interesting case that could be fascinating, but we just don't know. But at the very least, <laughs> it, it seemed uh, it's caught my attention just because of that cover page and how, um, you know, how the, the girl got burned. And then that little tidbit I saw about like a drunk person flying, firing off a gun and stuff. I don't know. Very strange case. All right. Um, <laughs> I've got one more. Okay. Why don't you give us your last one, Agent Ether? All right. So I have one from Iceland. Okay. Yeah, not quite sure why they're reporting in Iceland. There's an officer in charge, one Leroy C. Jones at Site H2. Well, the Project Blue Book did collect reports from all over the world. Uh, it wasn't that common of a thing to do, but when they got reports from over all over the world, when they get when they did get a report, they would file that report. It sounds like they were actually in Iceland, though. Oh, weird. Yeah, okay. at Site H2. I don't know if that means like headquarters too, or if it's a military base. It was in Langanes, Iceland, in December on December seventeenth of nineteen sixty eight. Okay. And the report includes three photos that are 8 by 10, but I didn't actually see them in the file. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes they'll reference files and stuff like that that's not actually in there, unfortunately. I was super excited at first because uh, it said it was included and then I was scrolling through, but there were no photos. It was very sad. But from what I read, they were pretty poor quality anyways. Yeah, and actually sometimes the photos will be elsewhere in the files and. Right. You have to find them. They may not be in that file. They might have filed them somewhere else. Well, this report said there were 1,800 Z citizens. I don't know what the Z stands for. Well, um, I, that, uh, that might be, um, I've heard that before in like military talk, like 1,800 Zulu. They may be referencing a specific time zone. Okay. Now that I think of it, because remember the last one, or one of the previous ones I was talking about, they had the same thing on their time code, eight, you know, the Z after the time. And uh, looking at oh, this one. Oh, maybe it's military time. Maybe yeah, it's at six o'clock. My, my next file I have here, the cover says GMT 10 slash 0210Z. So that would be. So you think it's a time reference, not 1800 people. Possibly, yeah. That actually yeah. makes more sense because that's a lot of people for a small fishing village. And 1800 would be six in the afternoon right, or right. in the evening, six o'clock in the evening. Okay, this is making sense. So this is 250 miles northeast of Keflavik or 15 miles west of Site H2, wherever that is. And there were reports of an oblong object equal to size to the moon, white with red tint traveling west at 100 kilometers, it remained in the area before disappearing behind a mountain. And just for fun, I'm going to try and pronounce this. It's spelled H-E-L-J-A-I-D-A-L-S-F-J-A-L-L. -L. 
Regular <laughs> listeners will be aware that we are fantastic at pronouncing things. Helgedalsfjall. <laughs> that sounds right to me. Sure. Uh, the local police actually used a Kodak Instamatic to take these pictures, but they said it was very dark, which is curious because... If that was the time, six o'clock, uh, maybe depending on the time of year, let's see, December, I guess it could have been dark. It's dark here around that time. So it was very dark and they took these pictures and they weren't very clear. So the author of the report, Leroy Jones, went and took statements from the locals, including the policeman who was an eyewitness and took the pictures and from what I could read, there were only four written statements in the report, but they were very consistent with one another. With the, it, it almost could have been that they were talking to each other and then gave the report. That's how consistent it was. Hmm. So the interpreter who was working with the author said there were other rumors and scattered details of other sightings hmm. within okay. the area. So his conclusion was, and I quote, my evaluation of the sighting is that the people of Thornshofen actually saw an unidentified object in the sky. This object does not fit the description of any known aircraft, unquote. So did the cover, did the um, cover page, did that say un, undecided? or There did it say... was no cover page. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I know it was a really short uh, memo actually written almost like a letter. Huh, okay. And it was just a couple pages. It wasn't like our typical case files. You know what it might have been? It might have been, you know, if uh, often we communicate with other militaries and they'll share information. So it might have been a report from that military or actually a summary of a report that was sent in to the United States Air Force. I don't know. It sounded like the officer in charge was on site because he had an interpreter. And Leroy hmm. Jones is a very American name. Could be a... Uh, some other country besides America. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> maybe, an, maybe an American immigrated to Iceland. Leroy Jones. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound pretty American. It really does. <laughs> yeah. And, and is that the whole case? That is the case. It was pretty, it was pretty short. But it's a really interesting. <gasps> oh, I love it. Multiple eyewitnesses. Yep. That's my favorite. Oh, Some... sad I couldn't see the photographic evidence. Even I if know. It, even if it was just, you know, pictures of light in the sky. And that's the thing, you know, skeptics will say, well, there's no good pictures of UFOs. That just isn't true. There's tons and tons of pictures. You just got to look for them, you know, and none of them are going to be of like ET waving at you out of a window. They're of objects that are hard to describe or hard to identify, but they could be, you know, something reasonable just at a weird angle or something. I don't know. But there are good pictures of UFOs. There's tons of them. And good sightings. This was a really good sighting and I'd never heard of it before, so. Yeah. All right. I just got two more short ones here before we wrap it up. This one is from April 9th, 1964. And uh, the local time was 2010 GMT 10 Zero two ten Z Zulu. There we go. And twenty ten would be eight o'clock or eight ten in the evening. Location was Ardmoro, Oklahoma, and it was a ground visual sighting from a civilian. And the length of the sighting was ten to fifteen seconds. And the number of objects was one. The course it maneuvered. The conclusion: insufficient data for evaluation which is probably fair in this case, but I still thought it was an interesting case. Okay, box 10, brief summary of the sighting. Drawing of object with windows. Object, uh, 
object reported to have maneuvered after appearing in the west. Impression was that object was extremely large, resembled an old blimp, appeared over trees in west, made a sharp turn, and disintegrated. And that's kind of what got... Disintegrated? Yeah, that's what caught my attention, because... I don't remember seeing too many UFO reports where the object disintegrated, right? Maybe it went into a different dimension. Yeah, maybe. maybe. time shifted. Yeah, who knows? Comments. Description and drawing indicate a possible AC aircraft towing an advertising banner. Request for additional uh, information. Well, I can't read the word, but I'm guessing additional info. Not answered. Insufficient data for evaluation, which I can see, yeah, this probably insufficient. So what they mean is they probably sent them that questionnaire and the questionnaire was not returned, right? So the second page here, we have a letter from uh, Captain, uh, oh, it was Captain, I thought it was Major. Anyways, Captain Hector Quintanilla Jr., Project Blue Book UFO, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio. Dear Sir, A recent United Press release by Emily R. Seville mentioned your project. I am... Oh, so he's addressing it to 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 Hector Quintanilla. Okay. Sorry, I thought that was the letterhead, but that's actually addressed to him. I am enclosing a sketch made by me after seeing some type of object on 4964 at about 810 p.m. I am not sure as to the accuracy on number of windows or size. It was visible long enough to have counted but the general overall dimensions and construction were so unusual, I'm afraid I didn't think on a scientific basis. It appeared much larger than object mentioned in article as seen in New Mexico by Mr. Zamora. Again, the Mr. Zamora case, which was around this time. Really good case. I highly recommend you folks check it out. Uh, More like the old type blimp as I remember them. The cloud in the sketch seemed very close. It appeared from back of trees in western sky over garage roof. From angle of object, it must have been in process of sharp turn. The disintegration process of framework uh, becoming fuzzy started while object was seemingly stationary, but process was quick and object moved on in same direction with framework clouding over when last visible. If you tell me this was a weather or observation object belonging to the United States, it would make me very happy since I find myself looking at each cloud with great suspicion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that would freak me out if I saw that. Yeah. I would be glad to answer any questions if sketch seems of interest, but I would not like to have my name used in relation to the matter. A stamped addressed envelope is enclosed, and I would like to have sketch returned. The reason for sending it along was to avoid a wordy description. Thank you for your consideration. Very truly yours, redacted, Ardmore, Oklahoma. So is there a sketch? Uh, Yeah, there there is a sketch. Yes. But unfortunately, it's very faint. The the sketch is, you can't really make much out. Oh, you can no. see there's a sketch of something on there, and it looks like maybe oval-shaped, kind of like a blimp, right? And maybe some windows, and it looks like you can see what is probably handwriting, maybe describing things, but 
labeling things, but um, that's a shame. It's probably how it was scanned. I bet the original you can still read. I bet it's right. legible. They probably scanned it with too bright of a light. Yeah. yeah. So it's unfortunate. It's also possible that these papers have been sitting around in those, you know, in those archives for decades. Maybe they just faded. Who knows? But I think it's I think it's hilarious that he wants his sketch back. Like <laughs> that's to put on his fridge or something. Just draw another one, buddy. What do you want? A gold star? <laughs> but but no, I thought it, this one was interesting because they say that it was um their conclusion of this one was that it was insufficient data and they say that it was probably a plane towing an advertisement, but did that sound like a plane towing an advertisement to you? Uh no. It did not sound like it to me. I mean, it sounds like the object was stopped. And like, I, cause the reason why I find this one so interesting is because I've seen many other reports where objects, UFOs, are sort of clouded in some sort of mist or something, right? Like they're hiding. Yeah, and it's. I wonder if this was this was some sort of mysterious object that, when it starts up its power thing to hit warp drive or whatever, it makes that cloud or the mist Ooh, appear around like it, like a cloaking device. Yeah, or something, or maybe it's just a consequence of whatever powers it. It makes like that form around it. And then it, you know, it behaves in a way that we've heard about before where it doesn't have to deal with inertia and it goes from basically from a dead stop to very, very fast, however fast it wants it to be. And then boom, it's gone. It looks like it disintegrated, but in reality, it just moved so fast that it disappeared. I'm wondering if that's what happened. Or maybe it was an airplane towing a banner that just sort of disappeared because of atmospheric reasons, I guess. I don't know. Put that one aside. I thought that was just a really fun case. All right, and I have one more for you before we are all finished up. This one happened on the 10th of April, 1964. It was, uh, the location is given as 44.2 north, 48.0 west over the Atlantic Ocean. The conclusion, what do you think it was, Ether? Mass hysteria. Yeah, over the Atlantic Ocean, yeah. (laughs) No, the conclusion was a balloon. All right, so why not? The the time was GMT 11-0155Z and 11-0043Z. No photos, a military source on this one. The length of the observation was 10 minutes, and the number of objects was three sightings. So this wasn't just one sighting, it was three separate sightings. Brief summary of sighting, and uh, category or box number 10 here. Sighting 1, object at 50 degrees elevation above horizon as observed through sextant. Observation through haze. Object appeared to have a rough shape with tail extending behind in trailing position. Same color of stars. Motion only distinguished object from stars. Sighting 2, surface vessels. Sighting 3, Air radar and visual sightings of two aircraft. Aircraft maintained on radar for five minutes after visually disappearing. And then comments in box 11. Some indications of balloon observation with package. No mention of radar pickup on first sighting. Possible balloon observation. I'm like, really? A weather (laughs) balloon over the Atlantic Ocean? Maybe it drifted up there by accident. Maybe some kid... At a party, let go of his balloon, and it had an adventure, and it traveled over the ocean. Sure, why not? Yes. <laughs> but like the last one, it's it's marked as insufficient data, but so many of these files are marked as either, like this one's marked as a balloon. You know, very, very few of these are marked as unknowns, 
But if you're looking through these files and only reading the ones that are marked as a true unknown or a true UFO, then you're missing out on a lot of really good reports. It, these are A lot of these are worth looking through. So anyways, the next page of the report, we have a bunch of gobbledygook. Some of this stuff I was talking about earlier, like uh, AFIN colon 46767, um, and then parentheses 11 April 64, A slash TRC, uh, and then a stamp above that says uh, Department of the Air Force Staff Message Branch Incoming Message, and then it has a bunch of stuff, you know, like info colon DIA slash 15 XOP slash one XOPX slash four SAF slash OS slash three uh, parentheses 31. So secretary of air force uh, opera office of something. I don't know. Um, department of DIA could be, you know, department of uh, what does the DIA stand for again? I don't know. There's a government agency called DIA. And then action, N-I-N slash seven. Like, what does all this stuff mean? It's like, I don't know, whatever. I, w- I won't go on about all this stuff, but <laughs> I just, I, I nerd out about this stuff. Anyways, report received from Captain D. Dunlop, USMC, pilot of KC-130F, 49795, VMGR-252, Cherry Point, NC. S- uh, sighted flying object at 1143Z, while flying at 25,000 feet on course of 090T MAG. Object first appeared with undetermined altitude due to haze conditions. From 045 MAG at 1148, object appeared 50 degrees above horizon through sextant, visually observed for approximately 10 minutes. Object appeared to have a round shape, a tail extended behind in trailing position. Object appeared same color of stars. Relative motion was primary factor which set object apart from stars. Same pilot sighted seven vessels in curving train at 43 I think it says 75, but it's covered over with like a stamp that's signed. So, you know, we, we maybe, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. Next page, um, 52-30W West, I guess. ACFT at 25000090 MAG. Vessels appeared in curving line, no apparent movement, no outlines distinguished, only lights observed. Three, also reported two unidentified aircraft with steady red light flying in loose formation. Sighted at 110155Z, parentheses 44 space 20N space 40-00W. Pilot's heading was 100 mag. ACFT seen at two aircraft, I guess, seen at two o'clock position, remained in that position one minute. Pilot turned to 115 mag, then planes appeared at 11 o'clock position and remained in that same relative position until visually disappearing. Radar sighting continued for approximately five additional minutes. Speed of aircraft estimated approximately 500 knots. GP-4, VT, note advanced or AD, ADV, C-Y-D-E-L to D-I-A and N-I-N. So those are probably departments. Um, Defense right. Defense Intelligence Administration. I think that's what that stands for. The D-I-A maybe and N-I-N. I have no idea what that is. I'd have to look it up. But um, yeah, this this report, like, it does it, as, on the surface, it just seems like he saw some airplanes or something, right? But why is it in the file? 
You know what I mean? And if he's reporting it, it must have looked weird to him. And I'm not seeing how this is a weather balloon, right? Like, I don't know. There's multiple sightings here, and yet they mark it as a, a balloon. So this one is sort of mysterious, and it, it really lacks enough information to kind of evaluate it. But on the other hand, sometimes it's more, it's more mysterious that way, and you just sort of have to wonder, why was this in the file, and why did they talk about it even? Why, why did this military pilot send this report in if it was just an airplane or just a balloon, right? Right. And pilots are from pilots have seen weather balloons. They know what they look like. So I'm skeptical of that explanation. So anyways, that's all, all of the reports I had for this episode. And I think that AG Neither, you're all finished as well. I am. All right. Well, uh, happy holidays, everybody. We're recording this on Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas and happy holidays for people who don't celebrate Christmas, I suppose. Happy New Year and all that good stuff. We have, uh, oh, looks like we still have a couple of people who stuck around in our live audience. Let's see, who is this? Um, small show turnout tonight because, you know, it is the holidays. Most people are probably with their families, but we got Yak. What's up, Yak? Thanks for joining us. And we have, uh, how do you pronounce that? It's E-N-X-N-E. N-X-N. Well, <laughs> well, thanks for listening, N-X-N and Yak. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's probably one of them uh, internet names there, you know, but... Yeah, so thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by suggesting the show to your friends and leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep it strange.